0: All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 26, we'll be in verses uh, 17 through 46 this morning before we get to the Lord's table. Um, And just want to give you a couple of uh, just notes about the gospel of Matthew. It it leans pretty heavily, the story of the Passion, on uh, Mark's gospel. And so um, there's not a lot of dissimilarities with Mark's gospel, but there's a few things that, that show up that are unique to Matthew. But one of the things is the actual perspective itself. And so Matthew is writing essentially to a Jewish audience to once again try to convince them of Christ's reign over all things, not just Israel, um, not just the Jewish people, but that, that the Abrahamic covenant does in fact include Uh, Gentiles uh, like us other people groups other than just the Jews and so uh, he is essentially trying to get them to understand the beauty and the breadth of the gospel which is something that we would benefit from as well which is why we every year take this time during the Easter season season to look yet again at the at the life and the death and the resurrection and ascension of Christ and so before we get to that though I I do have a question for you Um, if you were starting a business from scratch, or you were starting an organization from scratch, what kind of people would you pick in order for that to be successful? Right, I mean, we see this, right? So, so you've experienced this all as kids. Uh, you're, you're gonna play basketball, right? And two people are picked to pick the teams. Uh, who, who usually gets picked first? Whoever's tallest usually and looks, looks at least to the eye the most athletic, right? And we've actually seen throughout NBA history that's not always true. The tallest is not always the most athletic or the, or the best. But oftentimes, whether it's that or if it's flag football or if it's something, we're going to pick the person that we think is best first and who's always left for last. Some poor kid with two left feet and no coordination, right? And so, so, so often, that's the way of the world, is we always look at who's the biggest, the brightest, the smartest, the best spoken, uh, the cleanest, the one who has the best track record. Now let me ask you this, and so just so we don't get this twisted, this is not leadership principles for 2018, Uh, This is not how to ruin a business and maybe have Jesus resurrected after you've messed it up. That's not what this is about. So don't go taking these principles. I'm just pointing out something about the heart of Christ himself. What kind of people does he pick? We're going to see this morning that the kind of people he picks are the people who are far more concerned for themselves. They are selfish to the core. That on the eve of the death of their own Savior, that the one who had walked with them and shown them so much... Their biggest concern is, hey, how's this going to affect us? Who's going to be in charge when you're gone? Uh, 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 it's not us, is it? I mean, we're not, we're not at fault, right? On the eve of his death, these, these folks who are going to be the very foundation of the church, the apostles, right, which we don't get to be despite some people's claim of being a small A or a large A apostle uh, at this point, uh, they make promises they can't keep. Right, and In fact, they don't keep them within the very 24-hour cycle, the very five-hour, the very three-hour, the very hour-and-a-half cycle in which they made those promises. And he also picks people who can't even watch and pray, who, who think that this is about flesh. They would much rather have a sword in their fist and get to business than do the actual spiritual work where things are genuinely transformed. They don't even watch and pray. They can't even get it done for the length of time that Jesus is crying out in agony to his Father after all the promises they've made. And that is who he's going to found the church upon. That group of people. And it doesn't seem like he's changed a whole lot of his choices, uh, myself being a prime example. I am often much more concerned selfishly with how I look. Now you may think, I'm looking at you, I don't think you spend a lot of time on it. That's not what I'm talking about. (laughs) Uh, I'm more concerned with oftentimes what somebody thinks of me instead of whether or not they actually hear the gospel. I'm oftentimes much more concerned with what somebody's going to think about me than to actually confront them with the fact that they are perishing, that the decisions that they're making are going to destroy them and their family. I get it why churches don't do church discipline. It's messy. And nobody ends up liking whoever comes in first, which, as you might imagine, often is me. And so I am often way more concerned with my supposed glory than I am concerned at all with God's. And, as you might imagine, I've made promises I haven't kept. I have oftentimes said I would do and be somewhere and that I would help somebody and that I would never let them down and that I would pray for them and guess what I didn't do? Any of those things on various occasions. And, just so you know, Uh, I fail to watch and pray so often. I am growing in prayer. I don't think a book or a documentary should be made about me just yet, Uh, but it is something that I'm growing in in terms of desire and recognizing the great uh, beauty and power of it because, again, this fight is far more spiritual than we give it credit for. It is one on a plane that is far more supernatural than any of us are comfortable with. And that's what we're going to see in Gethsemane, that Christ, when he goes, and, and, and actually the hardest work of all is as he prays and submits to the will of the Father. And so, I and the rest of the elders, I'm sure, can tell you that we aren't the superstars. In fact, he must have some sort of bad news bears theology of leadership because that's us. And if that concerns you, well, good, because you need to be praying for us. And I appreciate it. And so the same is true for you, too. You're not superstars. Ain't nobody in here killing it at, at the gospel level. Ain't nobody knocking it out of the park. That just is not even possible. So I want you to be free of the tyranny of a perfection that you could never attain. And I want you to be free of the tyranny of thinking that it is even remotely possible that you could be perfect. In fact, the more I go, the more pastorally that seems to be where we're tangled up. And Francis Schaeffer said it well. When we buy into this idea of perfectionism, what it ends up making us do is nothing. Because we realize we can't be perfect, so we don't do anything. Right? And so, we're all in this together. And I pray that at the end of this that you may be slightly concerned that I'm shifting anti anti-nominian. I'm not, but you need to hear the gospel and you need to be confronted by the power of grace and you need to realize that it's nothing that you do. Nothing that saves you. However, you are empowered in Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit to actually do things that are pleasing to the Lord and are meaningful to the kingdom, but that's for the men's retreat and other times, but not here this morning. So if you would, uh, listen at this quote from somebody that if you know the guy's name, you're gonna think, Cameron's quoting heretics up there. I don't think he's entirely a heretic, but he is Catholic and he slides toward the universalistic end of the spectrum, but this quote's just gold. His name's Richard John Newhouse. He's written a ton about life in the public square and and, and other things, uh, which is very interesting. But he says this, and he's actually referring to the thief on the cross. As as he says, notice that the first person that gets into paradise with Jesus actually happens to be one of the worst people on the planet. And he says these words. Jesus is not very fastidious about the company he keeps. He's just not, is he? He's not real fastidious. And oftentimes, he's actually hard on the ones who think they're superstars. He's much harder on them and much kinder to the ones who are just an abject mess. And that just grates on our nerves, doesn't it? If we're honest, we don't like it that the harder you try in, in, to grow in pride, the harder Christ is probably going to be on you. And you don't like it that he's going to let somebody who ain't worth a dern come in at the last day and get the paid the same thing you got paid, which is all. You remember the parable where folks got upset about that? that the people showed up late, got paid the same thing. He's like, wait a second, you, you're fine. You, you got paid. You got paid what you decide, was, was all you need. But we need to come to terms with the fact that the gospel is confrontational and it is not in our control. And God is way more supernatural than we would like to believe. And he is way more gracious than we would like to believe. And he's way more merciful than we've ever been on even ourselves. And if it doesn't, kind of work you a little bit that I'm, I'm not sure you're dealing with the actual gospel of the scriptures. Because it does say that Jesus died for who? The ungodly. What? Wait, no, no hey, that can't be right. That's, that's got to be some sort of translational misprint, right? The ungodly? Jesus died for the ungodly? No, he, he, maybe he died. No, he died for those who were, try, who were trying, right? No, you are ungodly. We all are. And praise God, that's who he died for. So as we step into this text and we look again at a story we've probably all heard many times, I pray that we would be able to look at it with fresh eyes and notice some things along the way that will be a blessing to each and every one of our hearts. And if you struggle with kind of wondering the implications of some of what I'm saying, come talk to me, I'll tell you. I'll tell you where I'm coming from. And I'll tell you how it all plays out as best I can see it from the scriptures. But just remember, it ain't up to us who gets in and who doesn't. And we are actually a terrible judge of these things, as it turns out, which is why we're not the judge. And so, may we follow our Savior, who loved the ungodly, who loved the unlovely, and picked those who fail miserably, all of us included. So if you would, give your attention to the reading of God's word again from Matthew chapter 26. This is verses 17 through 29, and this is the last Passover. And why is it the last Passover? Well, because he's going to transform it, not conform it, but transform it into the Lord's Supper. And in this last Passover, uh, we're going to see selfishness in the presence of selflessness. And what's funny about the last Passover is only sinners are invited, just like the Lord's table. Only sinners are invited to the Lord's table who have been redeemed by a Savior. So if you would, again, give your attention to the reading of God's word. This is Matthew 26, starting in verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in this dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. In my Father's kingdom. All right, let's take note of a few things. Obviously, we're reading a large chunk of scripture and we can't we can't jot and tittle everything, but what we want to focus on in particular is really the response of the disciples and how it is that Jesus responds to their response. So they're meeting on the first day of unleavened bread. Well, unleavened, the the festival of unleavened bread is just it's the week long celebration of the Passover. And this being the first day, they would have eaten the meal at night. There's some discussion that maybe Jesus is doing it a day earlier than would be normal, which is perfectly his prerogative since he is the creator of the universe to move it a day sooner, right? And so for those who kind of get tangled up and like, this shows the Bible, is, you can't trust it. No, not this. There may be some other things that you have to kind of work through a little bit harder, but not this. The fact that he's doing it a day earlier is because, again, it's all about preparation and when the lambs would be slaughtered and when he, the Paschal Lamb, would actually be dying on the cross on behalf of the people. So the first day of unleavened bread was interesting because it, it in Exodus 12, 15, was the day on which you had to clear your house of leaven. Why? So that no one who came to your house would be in any way, shape, nor form made unclean. So it's interesting that what Jesus is doing is he is, in fact, clearing out the leaven as they uh, are preparing for him to go to the cross. And so notice that he tells them, go and find a man. They didn't give us any details. and, And this man knows enough about Jesus to know that there's something specific about him saying, my time is at hand. We don't know what it is that this, who this guy is or what it is that he knows, but The Lord has taken care of every detail. It's not up to the disciples to figure out. He's got it covered, right? And so as they recline and are are eating at dinner in the evening, he says, one of you is going to betray me. And notice what their biggest concern is. So you need to understand that if he's going to be betrayed... What does that mean? Well, it means he's going to be either turned over to the, to the Jewish religious leaders and or the Roman government, but it means the same thing either way. What does it mean to be betrayed? Certain death. So this isn't just like, hey, he's gonna get in some trouble, you may have to spend it, you know, uh, maybe a couple days in the county lockup, maybe pick up some trash on the side of the Roman road, you know, I don't know. But no, this is certain death. They're not concerned that he's fixing to die so much. It's just like, hey, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be responsible for that. Is it you? Peter, is it you? And, and notice what they say. Is it I, Lord? That's going to be critical because Judas's answer is very different. And so they want to know, is it us? And he says, no, it's the one who dipped his hand in the cup. Now, what he's talking about there is a purification ritual in which you clean your hands Isn't that interesting that the one who would be responsible for the destruction of of, uh, Christ going to the cross, for whom it would be better that they had never been born, was actually betraying him by evidencing a purification ritual, which is important for us because here's what we need to recognize. You can go through all of the religious kind of activities You can do all of the rituals. You can can go through all the purification rites. You can read your Bible. You can do all of those things. But does that make you a Christian? No, it does not. Those works, those deeds, those things don't make you a Christian. So it's important that you never, ever hang your hat on, your assurance based on anything that you do. Your assurance is based on what Christ has done. Now, let me anticipate an argument that you should fire back at me because I would fire it back at me. Yeah, but wait a second. Shouldn't there be some evidence of our salvation? Well, absolutely. And guess what the first evidence is? The renouncing of your works as salvific. The renouncing of your deeds as pleasing to the Lord in and of themselves. Never thinking that you have attracted the love of the Lord our God based on something you do. Never thinking that His love vacillates based on how many times you've done your devotionals this week. Now, am I letting you off the hook? No, I am not. You know I don't. You know I'll come for you at some point. But I don't want you being under the tyranny that is so destructive that led Judas to betray the Lord And cost him eternity. And so, don't think that your religious deeds mean anything apart from the finished work of Christ and how those things should always humble us. Our worship should always humble us. Your reading of the scripture should always humble you. If it makes you think you're smarter than someone else, that you've gained a knowledge they don't have, you've Missed it. That is not what the Lord does. He's not interested in raising up any single man or woman so that they would be glorified. He's only interested in raising up those who will glorify the Lord our God in our weakness. Remember what he says to Paul when Paul begs, take the thorn from my flesh. And how many of you have said this? If you would just take the thorn from my flesh, I could do more for you, Lord. You lie. Because if it were true, he would take the thorn from your flesh. But you don't know you're lying. You mean well. You're just making promises you're not going to keep. But instead, he says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, I am made strong. And we can say, I don't like that. Okay. I don't like it either sometimes, but it's the best thing we've got. And so, here, Judas is the one. And notice what Judas says that's different than the other disciples. He says, is it I, Rabbi? What'd they say? Is it I, Lord? Judas gives himself away with his confession. I don't call you Lord. You're nothing more than a teacher like all the rest. Is it I, Rabbi? And notice what Jesus says. So you have said you have confessed it with your mouth with what you just said you don't call me lord you don't submit to me judas i'm nothing more than 30 pieces of silver to you i am not lord in your mind in your heart so yes it is you now it may be disturbing to some of you that there is this mix of the sovereignty of god that as it is written so should christ be crucified but woe be unto the man who does it be better for him to never be born. Maybe you're hoping that I can somehow untangle that Gordian knot for you. I cannot. That is mystery. Both are true. We are responsible, and God is sovereign. Now we can talk more about that under other circumstances, but in this case, there's no untangling it, other than it's stated and it's true. And the reality is this: if it wasn't Judas it'd have been somebody. It was always going to be somebody because we do it. We betray Christ all the time, don't we? Because, again, I go back to the statement, in your weakness, my grace is sufficient for you. How many of you are like, dude, I love, I, that is, yes. What, what kind of thorn can get jammed hard into my flesh and make me suffer so Jesus can be glorified? Sign me up. There's none of us. Shouldn't be any of us. Now, many of you are suffering and you have wrestled with this text in a beautiful way. And you continue to wrestle with it as the suffering goes on. Struggle well in the power of your Savior. But none of us are begging for it. And if we are, we don't know what we ask. And so here Judas gives himself away. And then Christ does this amazing thing after they've shown this selfishness and Judas is commanded to be- betray him. He takes and he transforms the Passover into the Lord's Supper. He takes bread and he breaks it. And in other places, we know that what he says is, This is my body broken for you. You bunch of louts. You, he, and he doesn't excoriate them. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. He never points out the ginormous. Uh, feet of lumber sticking out of all their fat heads. Instead, what he says is, I'm going to redeem it all. Every square foot. I'm going to redeem it all. And so here is something to remind you always. And always do it in remembrance of me. This is my body broken for you. And he takes the cup, which we, uh, if you've studied this at all, you may know there's four cups in the Passover. And the third cup is really the cup of, of redemption, of deliverance of exodus. That's the cup that he drinks, and that's the one he holds up and they drink from. And he says, and I will not drink of this wine again, where there's a fourth cup that is really essentially tied to the restoration of all things. In the the Passover, it would have been the establishment of Israel as a theocracy in the promised land, which is the restoration of all things, if they would have understood it. But he says, I'm not going to drink of that cup yet. That is yet to come. That's the new wine that's coming. But I do want you all to drink of this cup of redemption because this is my covenant for you. All of you betrayers, all of you liars, all of you who aren't going to get it right, who won't even make it through the night before the sheen has come off of all of your promises, take and drink. Because I am your Savior. And He gives them this so that they would have hope And he promises to be with them again in the kingdom. That this is not the end. Which is powerful given kind of the darkness of the night. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this passage. He says, The little company to which the bread and the wine were first administered by our Lord was composed of the apostles, whom he had chosen to accompany him during his earthly ministry. They knew but little of the frailty of their own hearts. They thought they were ready to die with Jesus, and yet that very night they all forsook him and fled. All this our Lord knew perfectly well. The state of their hearts was not hid from him, and yet, and yet, he did not keep back from them the Lord's Supper. Again, some of you may be thinking, well, I don't know, man, that sounds, you're getting a little soft up there. That's Jesus. And we should not keep back the Lord's Supper from any who would come proclaiming Christ. We should not keep back the means of grace from anyone who says, I'm willing to rise one more time. The Lord in great grace allowed me to sit with some people yesterday in Providence that are some of of the worst sinners I know. And uh, and yet, they're on staff at churches. I'm not going to tell you which one's. Uh, and, and the Lord has redeemed and worked through the brokenness of a horrific affair in a marriage, has worked and redeemed anxiety that was crippling, and worked and redeemed cancer that was threatening to wreck it all. What a, what a gift to be able to sit at the table with people who at one time looked like they had no business being in and should have been told to get out. And yet, and yet, they serve the church And the beauty of their redeemedness. And they love people in a way that is just astonishing. Almost will make you uncomfortable. And it should. Because you're going to need that kind of love someday. Because you're not making it out of here perfect. None of us will. None of us are. So in the midst of difficult situations, let me ask you, what is your top concern? Usually. Usually. If you're honest, either you or your family, safety or security, something of that ilk, right? Rarely, I mean, on a, maybe the, the nicest of days, you are, you're kind of concerned with how the Lord's going to look in this, but in most difficult situations, it's all about self-preservation. It's, it's part of our wiring. It's part of how we are fallen, that we would self-preserve first. Rarely would anybody die for someone good, much less someone bad. Just quoting scripture. But what was Jesus' top concern here in the last Passover? Them. Not himself. Not what was going to happen to him. Think about it. Have you ever sat at a meal with people who are going to betray you? You knew it. You knew what they had done, and you gotta, you got to chew the food and smile and tell some stories and jokes, and you know they're going to betray you. Have you ever tried to do that, like gut it out through that meal? Susan, am I good at that? <laughs> Be honest. No. And I've done it poorly. Let me just tell you. There was a birthday party for my daughter. Um, and I just I couldn't get through it. I just couldn't I couldn't look like Jesus. And I wanted to so bad. In the anger Knowing what had transpired and what was unfolding was absolutely overwhelming. And I had to flee that place before I burned it all down. And you may say, What kind of man? I don't know if you should be a pastor. You're right. You're just right. I can't argue with you. But I am for today, and this is the gospel. You would turn back to the text. Let's read verses 30 through 35 together. And it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the exact same. As we see this, they have just finished dinner and they had sang a hymn, probably one of the Hallel or Hallelujah Psalms, most likely Psalm 113 or Psalm 114, which declares the redemptive work of God in the Exodus. It's Worthy of you reading that at some point this week and just kind of meditating on why they would have sung that song and the power of it on that night following the Lord's Supper. And so they sing and they go to the Mount of Olives. And he quotes to them from Zechariah 13, 7, a prophecy in which the shepherd is going to be struck and the sheep are going to be scattered. But he says these words after it, which is really important. He says, but I'm going ahead of you to Galilee. What did he just tell them? The striking will not be permanent and your scattering will not be permanent. I'm coming back and I will bring you back together. Now that, in microcosm, is Genesis 11 and 12. In Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, they're scattered all over the place. And then in Genesis 12, God chooses Abram to bless the nations in which he'll gather all back in together to worship him. So with every scattering, there's a return and a redeeming. It's always available to us. Never forget that. For those of you who will get scattered by your sin, who will run off, who will be cut off. Remember, the Lord has always paired the scattering with the drawing back in and the redeeming. Take heart, parents. Take heart, husbands. Take heart, wives. Take heart, sons and daughters. Take heart, you all. The Lord our God has promised that the stroke that falls will not have the final say. And yet, notice what Peter does. Yeah, 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 yeah. Prophets, Old Testament, I get Jesus. But here's the deal you don't know me. I mean, I know you've been with me for a while now, and you've seen some pretty ugly stuff. But, but let me just say, in my own strength, I got, I got this, Lord. I'm, I'm not, I don't, listen, I get it. The other 11 make us look bad. I, I just get it, right? Sons of thunder, they're always wanting to burn people. Actually, you know, that's 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 bad press. It's bad branding. I get it, but here's the deal: I'm Peter. I'm Peter, I was a fisherman. I I will not do as you say. I will not do as the Lord has ordained. No, I will do as I have determined. Hmm. Interesting, Peter. In fact. You won't even make it through the night, my friend. In fact, the rooster's not going to crow before you fail, actually. We're going to see that here in just a minute. Peter's failure begins long before he gets to the denial. In fact, they all jump in and say the same thing, and they are making promises that they cannot keep. But Jesus says, I know, I know, but I'm going to meet you in Galilee. What a powerful word for them to have heard after all that they're fixing to go through. And a powerful word for you and I, because Jesus has said the same to us. In this table, he says, I'm going to meet you again. I'm going ahead of you into the new, and preparing the way for you to come to the new heavens, new earth, so that you would dwell with God forever, uh, for eternity. I'm preparing the way, and I'm coming back, and I'm bringing all that good with me. And you get to taste of it, you who are in Christ. Stanley Hauerwas, again, if you know his name, you may go, isn't he a pacifist Methodist? Yes. And he's a a profound prophetic voice that we need to hear from from time to time. It's okay to hear from people we don't necessarily think we might agree with because we got stuff wrong too, by the way. But listen to what Stanley Hauerwas says about this passage. He says, and this is just beautiful, to be forgiven means that the disciples' betrayal, our betrayal, is subsumed by God's more determinative, redemptive purpose for his creation. Did you just hear that? Did you hear it? That your betrayal, your failure, will be consumed, wiped away, Far as the east is from the west, to to quote scripture, in the redemptive purposes of the Lord our God. And you may say, but yeah, but I still feel the effects. Yes, I understand. But what are you cultivating? Are you cultivating the effects? Are you cultivating the redemption? Are you using the means of grace? Are you believing the truth of the gospel? Or are you saying, yeah, but all too often? Are you letting yourself be haunted by that which actually is no longer even there in Christ? Howross goes on. To be so redeemed makes possible the recognition of our betrayal because sin is bounded by God's more determinative purposes. Forgiveness, therefore, is not a simple exchange between God and us. But rather the naming of a people who have become participants in a history that is an alternative to the history of the denial of God, a history of death that leads but to more. it's important that you recognize you're not being saved just for yourself, that the disciples are not being just redeemed so that they could be raptured with Jesus at His ascension. They're being prepared for something. You are being prepared for something. And if you're not engaging in the something you're being prepared for, then you are actually missing a large portion, if not the majority, of why it is that you've been redeemed. Now you may say, Does that mean I got to go to China? No, it doesn't, but it might. Does that mean I got to hug homeless people? No, it doesn't, but it might. Does it mean I have to forgive? Yes, absolutely it does. But forgiveness is not cheap and justice is not absent because of what Christ has done. So here's my question. What grand promises have you made that you haven't kept? Promises to love, promises to never forsake, promises to never give up, promises to never ever do that thing that you find yourself all too often doing. What are the ways in which God, in the midst of those failed declarations, that he's communicated his love for you? How has he pierced all that darkness? Maybe in a simple way. Maybe it was a a simple word. Maybe it it was just a reminder that you are not dead yet. And that even the breath in your lungs is but mercy and grace for today. That even just being able to put your feet on the floor this morning was the best you got to offer. And yet it is used and beloved of God. Maybe you trying to stay awake for this little bit. God bless you. Maybe that's the best you got today. We'll take it. And it is, not, it is not unworthy of the Lord our God. We'd love for better, but this is what you've got today. Offer it up. Humble as it is, because even your wakefulness is not going to make God love you more than your sleepiness may make me think something about you, but what do I matter, right? So how is God speaking in the midst of your failed declarations that he does love you and that your failure is not the end? Let's turn back to the text and look at Gethsemane, verses 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here. Well, I go over there and pray. And took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Then he came, and the disciples said, and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So in Gethsemane, what we see is that Jesus recognizes that the greater fight is actually spiritual, which is what we get wrong so, 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 so often. He recognizes that the true preparation for the cross is prayer. Not calisthenics, not a big meal. It is actually prayer. And when he says to the disciples who've made all these promises, just watch and pray. Notice what they fail to do. The simplest of tasks. We do the same. We can't can't keep our eyes open for things that we're not truly engaged in. I get it. We're a distracted group. It's hard. But it says something about our value of what's really going on here and here. And so notice that after all those promises they made, and notice his prayer's not very long. They don't even make it through it. But notice what Jesus does. He doesn't, he doesn't say, why would you have me die for these loons? No, he says all the more, look, if, there's, if this is the only way, Lord, may it be done. I love the way he says it the second time here in Matthew. He says, um, uh, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. In the agony of Gethsemane, Christ shows that the battle is not in the flesh. As we so often think it is, it's actually in the spirit. Which is why so much of what we do, I'm afraid, is but mere sin management. We do try to cultivate the the physical side of things, which is not unimportant, by the way. It is, but it's not primary. The greater battle is in the Spirit. And are are we humbly recognizing, are we a people of prayer who recognize that all of our doing won't change anything unless the Spirit is in it and the Lord has ordained it to be so, And the Lord is at work in and through it to redeem. This is incredibly important for those of you who are parents. This is incredibly important for those of you who are single and long not to be. This is incredibly important for those of you who are married. This is incredibly important for those of you who are looking for a job. This is incredibly important for those of you who struggle under the weight of sin and death. The battle must first be won spiritually. It must be won in prayer, not in all the effort that we make. R.T. France says this about this section. He says, the contrast is profound. And the reader is thus prepared for the different responses of Jesus and his disciples when the crisis comes his prayer will have restored his sense of purpose and his authority while the disciples, after an initial futile attempt at resistance, will simply give up and abandon him. So understand the abandonment of Christ has already begun and is underway before the betrayer ever even shows up because of our weakness and our frailty. But let me ask you, what empowers you regularly to use the means of grace for those who are not who are like what are the means of grace well prayer uh the reading of scripture in various forms whether that's devotionally uh in a group however you want to you study it however you want to do that meditate on it all that's means of grace fellowship Uh, the the sacraments, the Lord's table, baptism, all these things are the means of grace that help cultivate in us an understanding of who we really are and who Christ is. So what is it that actually empowers those things? Well, let me help you. It's not you. It's not you. You may say, but yeah, I'm the one that does it. My Bible ain't gonna read itself. And you're right. You're right. But you are not gonna get anything out of it if the Spirit's not in it. And all that effort is just going to lead you to end up hating it if you're not careful. So did I just say, so take a break? No. Have your mind transformed by the power of the Spirit. Cultivate what you know ought be true and fight for it because you are fallen in a fallen world. Though you are redeemed in Christ, you're still mix of saint sinner. You are beloved. You are no longer a worm. That's why you can take and eat and know that it is good. And what makes this stuff effective? Well, again, let me help you. It ain't you. You don't make it effective. The Spirit does. And you may say, wait, man, I mean, that's just Saul. That's just, that's just abstract, that's supernatural. Yeah. And God's invisible, right? I mean, let's, let's not get off point here. Uh, we are talking about things that are deeply supernatural. And no, they don't make us comfortable. And yes, we would love to control them. That's the problem. And praise God that Jesus does what we can't do. And so what do we learn from this initial section of the passion of Christ in Matthew? We learn three things. While we are selfish, Christ is selflessly concerned for God's glory and our redemption. While we make promises we can't keep, Jesus keeps his promise to see us again. While we fail to watch and pray, Christ was prepared to be crucified on our behalf. So while you are wreckage in and of yourself who cannot please the Lord all by yourself, Christ is accomplished so that you can.